This morning we'll be reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said, What do you want me to do? They said to him, Grant us to sit on your right hand and on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus replied. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. That is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the other ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them all to himself and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." This is God's word. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, I invite you to take a Bible, either one you brought with you or the one in the rack in the pew in front of you. Turn it to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, which is really, when you think about it, a strange thing to say in light of God being great. We just sang about the greatness of God, how great our God is, and here in the Bible, Jesus, God in human flesh, is saying, yeah, but I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. And honestly, that's kind of weird, isn't it? If you're the great God, what do you mean you came to serve? That's just weird. Weird is something we know a lot about uh, living in the Portland area, don't we? If you've been around here for any length of time, many of you have, you're probably very familiar with the slogan. It's on bumper stickers, it's painted on the side of buildings. Keep Portland weird. We actually uh, like that. Kind of the, being the town, the city that has a, a different vibe. Whether it's donut shops that put like bacon and boxed cereal on their donuts to the 24-hour Church of Elvis. There is such a thing in Portland. Did you know that? Or even much more substantively, Portland's legendary battles in decades past against freeways and what we derisively call around here urban sprawl. Whatever it is, Portlanders tend to be proud of the fact that we live modern American life a little differently than people in other major metropolitan areas tend to live it. In fact, maybe more than a little differently. In fact, we're so proud of it that we tend to to take the raised eyebrows that we get from other people who live in other parts of the country, like, you guys do what up there in that corner of the country? And they're like, man, you guys are weird. And we wear that as a badge of honor. Keep Portland weird. We don't want to be like everybody else. We want to be, in some ways, different. And if you think we're weird, that's fine with us, because we think we're doing something better. 
Well, we're in the middle of a section of Mark's gospel, this fourth section that we've been in. We've been walking through this from start to finish. From the end of chapter eight through chapter 10, we're looking at chapter 10 this morning. This is really the, the fourth section and it has a, a major theme and it's, it's really this theme. Jesus has been telling his followers, primarily the 12 disciples who were walking around with him and by extension all the rest of us who have followed him in the centuries since, he's been telling them that his followers live life in this world differently than the way everybody else lives it. That's how the gospel continues to shape our lives. It doesn't just start a life with Jesus, it continues to shape it. And a gospel-shaped life looks different than the lives of other people around us, and that makes Jesus' followers kind of weird in the eyes of people. Now, specifically, we live in the 21st century here in, in what many people have referred to as the age of authenticity. Uh, that's kind of what social commentators often, a phrase they often use to describe modern American culture. We're the age of authenticity. And by authentic, we mean I live out and act on what I really feel inside. That's the idea of being authentic. So when we talk about the age of authenticity, we're talking about a culture, a society, where the highest good... The supreme value is that every person should be able to express whatever they feel inside. Like that's the, the greatest possible good with, with no inhibitions, um, no holding back. You ought to be able to be, we might say, true to yourself. And what we mean by that is you should be able to live in a way that's consistent with what you're feeling inside, your urges, your passions, your drives. Those should define and shape your life. You know, heroes in our stories and in our movies increasingly are people who define themselves, especially if they define themselves against the cultural tide. If they sort of buck the trend and go their own way and succeed in defining themselves, that's a heroic thing in the eyes of our modern culture. You see it even in the movies we make and the stories that we tell. Everything in life is about every person taking a journey of discovering who and what they really are. In other words, in the age of authenticity, we tend to see that life is about you really ultimately living for you. And because this life is all we have, according to this mindset, there's tremendous pressure to use the few short years or short decades of this life, achieving what is essentially a selfish end, the full expression of who I am and what I feel inside. Well, there's the age of authenticity. Now, along comes Jesus in the Bible, and he's telling us as his followers to suffer for and sacrifice for him. That's what he's telling us. To spend, he's telling me to spend my life denying myself, to quote his exact words, he who would come after me must deny himself, take up a cross and follow me. He's telling me to spend my life denying myself and advancing his agenda rather than my own. And he promises me that only then will I find the real life that everybody out there is looking for, but I'll find it in eternity. Now here's the point, guys. If we follow our Savior's lead here, like, if we actually do what we're reading about in the Bible, if you think about your life that way and live your life that way, you will be weird. In the age of authenticity, that makes no sense at all. 
Make no mistake about it. Truly following Jesus will make you a freak in people's eyes. And this is not even something you really have to try to do. I'm not talking about, you know, being demonstrative or standing on a street corner dressed up like John the Baptist and yelling gospel, you know, messages at people or something like that that just kind of makes you stand out in a crowd. I'm not even talking about that kind of thing. I'm just simply talking about going about living your life. Just be the kind of person who doesn't live for him or herself, but who instead spends his or her life not on the incomparable good of self-expression, but on the incomparable good of advancing Jesus' name. And if you do that, you'll be weird. And this passage this morning, chapter 10 of Mark's gospel, Jesus is going to give us three uh, examples of how this might look. What does this weird Jesus-following life look like as contrasted with the culture around us? Now, interestingly, he gave these three examples in the first century, in the Middle East, in a Jewish context under Roman rule, okay? That was the historical context. And here we are, you know, 20 centuries and more later in a totally different time in a totally different part of the world. And yet what we're going to see, I think, as we get into the Bible here, is that the examples he gives are remarkably relevant still today. In fact, chapter 10 really breaks out like this, and, and I want to show us this overview because it's, it's a long chapter. We're going to do it all this morning, which means we're going to move fairly quickly. We're going to fly over this, like we like to say, at kind of the 10,000-foot level. Uh, each one of these three areas could be the subject of one or two full sermons, and we still wouldn't run out of good things to say. And so to cover all three of them at once means clearly we're going to just be flying over the top. And the reason for that is, while it would be really good to dive into them and look at them much more closely, it's also good to do what we're trying to do this morning, and that's pull back and see how the whole chapter fits together to advance a single theme, a single message. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us his followers. The chapter kind of looks like this. There's three major scenes. That's the backbone of the chapter. And sort of like a triple-decker sandwich, uh, in between each one of those scenes, Mark, the author, has inserted these little interludes where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's teaching them a principle. The first one is about humility and the second one is about sacrifice. They're really kind of the same thing. And that intersperses these three scenes where Jesus is essentially telling his followers, be weird when it comes to marriage and divorce. Be weird when it comes to money and how you manage it. And be weird when it comes to your goals and ambitions in life. Three examples of what a weird life might look like. So knowing uh, we've got a long ways to go and we're going to do that in a short period of time, let's jump in. Uh, I'm hoping you've read this chapter ahead of time. By the way, we print uh, the forthcoming passages of Scripture for the next couple of Sundays in the bulletin to encourage you to read ahead, and uh, that will help as we fly through this. If not, let me tell you that the first scene starts with the Pharisees, that group of religious leaders that has been Jesus' most ardent opponents, coming to him, chapter 10, verse 1, says he left there um, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. He's now heading south to Jerusalem, and we know that that means... He's heading to his crucifixion and his death. Crowds gathered to him again, and as was his custom, he taught them. Now, verse 2, the Pharisees came up in order to test him. That's their motive, to test him. And they asked, here's their question, is it lawful, meaning in God's eyes, for a man to divorce his wife? Now, let's just pause right there. What's going on here? 
clearly we've already been told what their motive is. Uh, Their goal is to test Jesus. This is not an honest question. This is something that they're trying to trap him in. The trap simply consisted of a couple things. Uh, First of all, they're very close to where Herod lived. Herod was the regional Roman governor, and we've run into that guy before throughout Mark's gospel. He's most famous for cutting John the Baptist's head off. John's road ended at Herod, and why did Herod cut John the Baptist's head off? Because John the Baptist told Herod, you are not lawfully married to your wife. You guys were unlawfully divorced, and you have an unlawful marriage, and you can't do that. And Herod, and particularly his wife, did not appreciate that, and John lost his life. So if the Pharisees can get Jesus on record as saying, no, 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 you're not supposed to divorce people, hey, maybe they can get his head cut off too, which would be perfectly fine with them. So that's kind of the historical subtext of what's going on here. Now, more directly, within the Jewish faith, there were two different opinions on this question. Can a man divorce his wife? By the way, they're not asking if a wife can divorce her husband, because the answer to that was simply no. Women didn't have any kind of rights to get divorces under Jewish, Old Testament Jewish law. Men could, but the question was when and under what circumstances is God okay with me divorcing my wife? And the debate hinged on an Old Testament statement from Moses in the book of Deuteronomy that referred to if a husband is displeased with his wife and divorces her, and then it goes on and on and on. And the rabbis would argue endlessly about what this means and how to understood it. It basically broke down into two camps. The first camp you see there at the top was the rabbis that said, well, this means a man can divorce his wife if she commits adultery that he is displeased with her because she's been sexually unfaithful to the the, the relationship. If that happens, then God is okay with him divorcing her, but for no other reason. The other kind of school of thought said, no, If if a man is displeased with his wife for any reason, he can divorce her. She doesn't look good anymore. She doesn't respect him enough. She's not even a good enough cook. That's grounds for divorce, and God's okay with that. That was their, So this was the debate that went back and forth. And so the Pharisees are putting this question to Jesus to try to make sure that he offends one group of Jewish people or another. It's a trap. Look at Jesus' response. What did Moses command you? Verse 3. They said he allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus replied, It's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment but from the beginning of creation, and now he quotes Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible, God made them male and female, and then he quotes Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, because of this creation order, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus says it's pretty simple. They're no longer two, but one. So what therefore God has joined together, this man who is displeased with his wife, let him not separate. Jesus' response here is interesting because it takes issue with their mindset. He doesn't actually take sides in the debate. He says, both of you guys are asking, how far can I go to get what I want before God is mad at me? So in each case, what's driving this this hypothetical man who wants to divorce his wife, what's driving him? What's driving him is he doesn't like her. He doesn't want to be married to her anymore. And the only question that people in both of these camps are asking is, how far can I go to get what I want before I start losing out with God? Jesus says, that's your problem. That's your problem. You're both after what you want. And nobody's thinking about what God wants. 
Jesus reframes the perspective of his hearers by urging us to learn to love what God has ordained and to be willing to suffer displeasure in this life if need be, even in my marriage if needed, in order to honor God and gaining eternal life. And this is where we see how this one scene starts to fit in with the flow of this entire section of Mark's gospel. The theme has been, my followers, Jesus is telling us, suffer and sacrifice in this life to advance gospel agenda. Well, if I have to suffer by being in a marriage that I'm not excited about, I just want to ditch and go off and find something better, that's looking out for me. Jesus says, no, 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 look out for God. Better to be in a bad marriage for a little while on this earth and honor God for all eternity. If you stay in a marriage when it gets difficult, and by the way, note the when, not the if. <laughs> by staying in a marriage when it gets difficult, for many of us that probably means we're in for months and sometimes even years of hard, painful, miserable work. And the common advice we get in the culture around us, if you're going to do that, is, what's wrong with you? She's selfish. He's a jerk. Ditch him. Move on to greener pastures. This life is all you got. You got to look out for yourself. You got to think about yourself. You got to get your happiness. Now, if you were to respond by saying, you know what? This is really hard, but I'm going to stick it out anyway because, you know, my life is, it's, it's about Jesus. It's not about me. I can just about guarantee that weird is the mildest thing you're going to be called. At the very least, you're weird. At worst, it's like, what is wrong with you? Have you been brainwashed by some cult? No, that's not a healthy way to think. You've got to live this life for you. You see, that's our culture. Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you're following me, we live different. Of course, this is not all of the Bible's teaching on the subject of divorce and marriage. There's much more that could be said. This is in the context of a man who is unhappy with his wife, justifiably or not, and he wants to get rid of her. But what we need to see is how this fits into the theme of Mark's gospel. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you're not thinking about what can I get in this life. I'm thinking about how can I spend this life on God's honor. And that's the theme that continues right on through this. We get to this first interlude, verses 13 to 16, where some people are bringing little children to Jesus so that he might bless them. And, and the disciples are rebuking them and getting, trying to get rid of the kids. They're trying to shoo the kids, the annoying little kids away. It says when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He was mad at his disciples. I love the word indignant. It's like one part shocked, like, are you serious? And then one part really angry, like, what is wrong with you? He's saying to his guys, stop it. And then he says, let the little children come to me. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a small child shall not enter it. That's kind of the message of this little interlude. Now, the point here is that not so much as oftentimes I think it is said that, you know, well, little children, uh, especially when they're really young, they don't understand very much and they just trust, you know, adults in their lives. And so that Jesus is saying that that's what Christianity is like. You're not supposed to think at all. You're just supposed to trust blindly. And I don't think that's at all what's going on here. I think what he's saying within the context of this passage is children had the socially low position. That's how the disciples were treating them. 
They were, they were urchins. They were linoleum lizards. They, they were under our feet and in our way. You know, the, these kids are getting in the way of us big shot adults doing the big shot important adult things that we big shots are doing. So get rid of the kids and let us get about our really important adult things. Because kids, obviously, they're in a lowly position. And that's even true today. We don't let children vote until they reach a certain age. We don't let children drive cars. Up to a certain age, we don't even let children work, and that's appropriate because they're not yet ready to handle those kinds of responsibilities. They're in the socially low and dependent place. They have no standing. And Jesus says, that's how you're to receive the kingdom. You don't aspire to be the big shot. You aspire to be the lowly, pushed off to the side kind of person. That's weird. Can we just say that? That's really weird. That's what our Savior's telling us. Now that leads us right into another example of how this might look. Be weird, Jesus says, with money. Be weird with money. A well-known uh, interaction Jesus has with a young, a rich young man. Let me set the stage here for the story briefly. This young man comes up. He's a very religious guy. also happens to be pretty wealthy. He says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him, well, follow the Old Testament law. That was what was still in force at the time. And the guy says, yeah, 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 I've done that. But is there anything else I need to do? And Jesus, sort of perceiving what was going on with this guy's, um, in, his, in this guy's heart, says to him, verse 21, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Divest yourself of all your material possessions. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. And then you will have treasure in heaven. And verse 22 says, disheartened by the saying, the young man went away sorrowful, for he had a great many possessions. You know, what's interesting about this is that Jesus, it's in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, go sell all your possessions. Which, in a passage full of weird stuff, is another weird thing. Like, really? You love someone by telling them to go get more poor? doesn't sound like a very loving thing. You want people to have more money. You want people to be able to take care of themselves. And here he is telling a guy who can't take care of himself to get himself poor. How is that loving? And of course the answer is because he says, you will then have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Jesus is trying to free this guy from an anchor that keeps him underwater. I, I picture what's going on here almost like a scuba diver. Like this guy's scuba diving shipwrecks looking for treasure, and he's actually found one. He found a wreck, he found a box of gold, and he's down there, and he's like, oh, and he's picking it up, and it's barely, um, you know, he's, he can, he's barely strong enough just to pick up this heavy box of gold, and he's trying to swim back to the surface, and he can't make it, because the box of gold is too heavy. And Jesus is saying, be free. <laughs> uh, rid yourself of the box, it's too heavy, come to the surface and find real life. After all, what good's it going to do you if you're still holding onto that box when your oxygen tank runs out and you drown? Not going to help you very much. But the man went away disheartened, the Bible says, which, which shows us how strongly his heart was really tied to his wealth. I mean, you know what he was really asking Jesus when he came and said, hey, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What he was really saying to Jesus is, Jesus, how can I get to the surface while still holding on to this box of gold? How can I do it? Because I mean, I've been kicking and swimming as hard as I can and I just can't lift it up off the bottom. So can you tell me how to get up and have more wealth too? 
And Jesus tells him, you can't. You can't. So let it go before your oxygen runs out and find real life. But the man wouldn't. Jesus makes a principle out of this from verses 23 down to 31. And we can summarize the principle this way. The love of money is a powerful influence that keeps many people's hearts tied to this life as opposed to the next. The love of money is an influence that keeps many people's hearts tied to this life as opposed to the next. In verse 25, he famously says it's more difficult for, or sorry, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So be weird with money, he says, let it all go. So is that what Jesus is telling us? Be weird with money, sell everything you have, and go live on the streets. That's what he told this guy. Is that what he's telling everybody? Not necessarily. But the principle's clear, isn't it? Once the legitimate needs of myself and my family are met, once I'm, I'm into the place of like, not just like, am I going to eat tonight, but now I'm into the area of lifestyle choices. What am I going to eat? Where am I going to eat? Not just do I have shelter, but what neighborhood do I live in and how much luxury and comfort do I have? Once we've gotten beyond basic life necessities, Jesus says money is like a contagion that we're exposed to and we're just trying to battle off infection. The one way, the best way to make sure that it doesn't, money doesn't exert an undue influence on my heart is to give it away. Is to give it away. Now this may qualify as one of the weirdest things in the passage full of weird statements that Jesus has said. And the mindset of our culture is that what you earn, obviously, is yours. It's your money. You've earned it. And money is the key that turns the lock to happiness. The more of it you have, the more doors you can unlock and the more happiness and comfort you can and, and pleasure you can pursue. Now, just think about this in, in concrete terms. If, if you're relatively poor, if you're having a tough time just making ends meet and providing for basic needs, and you give 10% of your gross income to support the ministry of your local church. And we'll start with 10% just because that was the Old Testament uh, basic standard for regular giving, the tithe, the 10%. The New Testament actually says give generously, which goes in beyond that. But we'll just stick with the Old Testament 10%. Now, if you're having trouble making ends meet as it is, and you are still giving 10% of your income to your local church, you will be a freak. Like, don't tell your friends and neighbors if you still want them to be friends and neighbors, because they will say, what is wrong with you? Like of all people, you know, you should, you've got a right to not give anything. You should earn that, keep that money for yourselves because you don't have much of it and you need it and your family needs it and you can come up with all these lists of legitimate needs and they're probably legitimate. Who voluntarily gives 10% away when they're still trying to figure out how to stretch the money to the end of the month? But you know what? It's not just for those of us who may be just kind of struggling to make ends meet. It's also for those of us who are living fairly comfortably in terms of our income. Even if your family's basic needs are well in hand, but still you're giving 10 or 12 or 15 or more percent of your income to support gospel ministry in your local church and through supporting other missionaries in other places around the world, that kind of thing. That starts to add up to some pretty significant opportunities that you could have for your family and you're voluntarily choosing to bypass 
so that you can be in support of these works. And that's weird. You're deliberately foregoing the chance to have nice stuff, not bad stuff, nice stuff for your family, good experiences, but you're bypassing those so that you can give to your church or support a missionary. You're doing that voluntarily. Friends, if you actually live this way, you are weird. I mean, people start going like, yeah, like, are you in some kind of a cult? I mean, that's not healthy. That's not normal. That's how weird you will be in the eyes of people if you actually do what Jesus is saying. Now, please note, we're not here making ironclad rules about how Christians should spend money. This is hardly the sum total of everything the Bible teaches about money management. Uh, we don't believe in our church any of this, you know, external rules matter. Like, you know, if you have a new car instead of a used car, clearly you're being godless with your money. I mean, you know, if your house is over a certain number of square feet, clearly you're not following God's way. You know, look, there's plenty of room for Christians to reconcile the tension between financial biblical principles like wise money management and where that intersects with providing for the needs of my family and where that intersects with generous giving like how all that works out in my family and in my life, every Christian's got to wrestle through that together before the Lord. There's plenty of room to do that. But that said, you know, we're not going to create like legalistic rules about how to apply the financial principles of Scripture. We also are not going to ignore those principles just because we're afraid of being called legalists. Do you hear what I'm saying on that? The principle here is very clear. Jesus has lived this life for the next. Give it away, especially when I've got way more than I need just to make my ends meet. Don't let your heart see money as a way to create some heaven on earth. Instead, as a Christian, I see my money as a way to bring a little bit more of earth into heaven. And that's why I support gospel ministry so that more and more people can have churches like this one to come to and hear about God, so that people can have churches in places like Boma, South Sudan, and Terra Blanche, Haiti, and some of these other places where our church is involved that wouldn't be there if we didn't give. What a joy not to see money as a way to bring heaven to earth, which never works, but to see money as a way to bring some of earth to heaven, which does, because God uses it. If you do that, I guarantee you, you will be a freak. Who thinks that way? Jesus. So, if you're a Christian, do it. When it comes to how you handle money, keep Jesus weird. That leads us to the second interlude. Before we get to our last episode, a brief um, comment in uh, verses 32 down to 34 where Jesus, for the third time in three chapters, explicitly tells his disciples he himself is going to suffer and die, and he's doing it voluntarily. Jesus is the number one weirdo of all this weird stuff because he's saying his life isn't about him. His life is for service to others. Verse 33, he says, See, we're going to Jerusalem. He just tells them flat out, the Son of Man, again, that Old Testament title he's applying to himself, will be delivered over to uh, the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, which meant the Roman authorities in that case, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. 
and after three days, he will rise again. He's telling them, guys, I know all this is coming, and I'm walking straight into it. I could stay up in Galilee and hang out and become really popular and kind of build my own little kingdom and have a good life on this earth. That's not what I'm about. I'm about laying my life down so that other people may find life. I'm spending this life to advance the Father's agenda for the good of millions, the eternal good of millions. And in this, Jesus is setting the bar very high for his followers because the whole theme of this section has been, you do likewise. He's setting the bar very high, or as we might want to say, he's actually setting the bar very low. Very low. He says, see your life not as something where you go achieve for yourself and what you can have and what other people have and what you want. See your life, if you're my follower, as something you spend for the benefit of other people, for eternal benefit. You become the servant. That's the consistent theme. He says, because that's what I've done which is a really nice way to lead into the final scene where Jesus says not only be weird when it comes to your relationships, marriage, divorce, family, be weird when it comes to how you handle your money, but thirdly, he says, be weird with your goals, with your dreams, with your ambitions. What's life all about? That's the subject of this third and final encounter from verses 35 down to 45. And that's the passage we read earlier. James and John come to him, two of the 12 disciples, and they say, hey, when we do get to heaven, make us the big shots. You're going to be the king, that's cool. Can we be like the prime ministers? That'd be sweet. Okay, you're going to get the corner office with the really big desk. Can I have the one right next to it with the kind of big desk? Where I'm like keeping your calendar, people have to come and check with me first because I'm a big shot, you know? That's what they're after. They're like, okay, even, we're still trying to figure out this, like, you're going to Jerusalem to die thing. I mean, that's still, they're still processing that. But, but they keep hearing him talk about, one day, I am going to be the universe's king, and I will be crowned in glory. And they say, great, whenever we get there, make us your right hand, guys. That's what we want. And he responds to them by emphasizing again that his most dedicated followers are going to suffer, just like he himself will. And they say, yeah, we're willing to do that. And he says, well, okay, you will suffer, but he doesn't promise them the position that they're after. And now the other disciples get angry. Verse 41, when the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. These guys are hacked off. They're mad. They're like, oh, I get it. I get it. Like all 13 of us are running around together and you two guys pull the boss off by the side and you start kind of politically maneuvering for your special position, which of course is going to come at our expense. What if I want what you're getting and you're just trying to get there before me? And so now they're all mad. They want a piece of the action too. And everybody's having this, I love this. This is, this is the 12 apostles of the church. <laughs> These are the great heroes of the New Testament faith, right? And I mean, the Bible's like so real. Like, look, this is what they're wrestling with. Basic human selfish ambition. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell them to do differently. He says, guys, stop. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones love to show their pomp and their wealth and their power and have those positions of authority. Kind of like what you guys are asking for right now. But it shall not be so among you. Why? Because what did I just tell you? I'm going to die. That's how this works. I'm going to spend myself, not to be lifted up, but to be beaten down. And right after hearing me talk about how I'm going to be beaten down, you're talking about how you want to be lifted up. 
This whole argument amongst the disciples shows what their hearts are tied to. They're tied to status. They're tied to status. And Jesus warns that this will keep them from following him. If you're that into status, then there's certain sacrifices you simply will not be willing to make. You will not be willing to put your reputation on the line. You'll not be willing to put your money on the line. You'll not be willing to put your relationships on the line. You'll not be willing to put something on the line. At some point, if you're all about ambition, you will stop short of really following me. And so he says, whoever, verse 44, would be first among you must be the slave of all. Verse 45, many Bible scholars would point to this verse as kind of the the key summary verse for the entire gospel of Mark. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life up as a ransom, buying eternal life for many. He says, that's what my life in this world is like. And that's how my followers think about their lives in this brief, brief life in this world. Our goal in this first go-round of life is not to have it all for ourselves, to be served, but to spend ourselves for the spread of the gospel, even at great personal cost. You see, there's a huge difference between godly aspiration, on the one hand, and selfish ambition, on the other. And sometimes it's really hard for me to tell the difference between the two in my own life. Our culture now, 21st century modern America, we praise winners. Again, that's nothing new. Social commentators have been saying that forever. America loves the winner. And it's true. We love drive. We love competition. We take the guy who has an unquenchable, insatiable thirst to be number one and to beat everyone else around him into the dirt so that he's the last man standing, and we hold that guy up as the greatest example of what we should all be. Everybody should yearn to, to achieve, even if that comes at other people's expense. The competitive drive, that's good. I mean, hey, this is Super Bowl Sunday, right? Why is it such a national holiday? Well, part of it is we like football, which I do too. I mean, that's cool. But, but we'll see so much of, and this isn't really just about sports. You just see it a lot in sports. But this is like all over our culture. We are constantly in love with the winner and the one who has the drive to succeed no matter the cost. Now, here's an interesting question. You should try asking somebody this someday. I haven't had the guts to yet, but I'm going to try one of these times. Next time somebody says something like that, just say, why? Why what? what? Why should I have the drive to succeed and be number one and beat everybody else? Why is that a good attitude to have? Somebody just unlocked the funny farm because this guy is out of his mind. Like, your gourd is empty, buddy. Like, what is wrong? What do you mean? Why? Because it's self-evident. That's the way it ought to be. Because that's the value that our culture loves. That is the God our culture worships at the altar of. And when you come along and say, I don't worship at the altar of selfish ambition, you're a freak. You're weird. I say, well, what's wrong with you? Do you think just like sitting on the couch and having no drive and ambition is a good life? Oh, I didn't say that. Is that what we're saying? Well, I don't think I said that at all. Actually, I think that Christians, if we're listening to Jesus, have the biggest ambition in the world. 
One of the, well, this is just one of the fantasies in my head. Again, I've never done this. Maybe I will someday. But to get into a conversation like this with somebody and say, actually, I think the problem is not that I, I want no ambition. The problem is that that ambition you're talking about is so puny and weak. Who would want to do that? Puny and weak? We're talking about being the champion. Yeah, so what? And you get your championship trophy and you still die. Well, my name's in the record books. Well, you're not around to enjoy it. I mean, I don't, I don't get it. What's, what have you achieved? You see, the, the point of the Christian life is not that there's no ambition. The point of the Christian life is that there's incredible ambition. It's just not ambition for me. It's not ambition for me and my achievement. It's ambition for Christ, that I'm zealous for his name, not mine. I want him in the record books, not me. We're zealous for the spread of his fame, not my own, up to the point where I will do anything and offer any sacrifice that it takes. I will train harder than any athlete and sacrifice more than any Olympian if it means that Jesus is magnified and the gospel goes forward. Friends, when you get more excited about global missions than about a promotion at work, you know you're onto something. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that. Well, you actually get more excited about somebody's baptism than you do about a bonus that you just received from the office. Then you know that the Holy Spirit is changing your heart to be more like Jesus. You also know that you're a freak. You're really weird. Because people just don't live that way. When it comes to what you're striving for in life, keep Jesus weird the very last scene in chapter 10 wraps up this entire section of mark's gospel jesus heals a blind man he's a lowly beggar type that's very clear verse 47 it says when he heard that jesus um, uh, of nazareth was coming he began to cry out and say jesus son of david have mercy on me big crowd around and many people rebuked him telling him to be quiet again they're just like the, the disciples with the kids earlier the guys are just kicking this beggar to, hey shut up the big guy's coming through you're just a stinky smelly beggar and he just he just keeps shouting even louder i'm desperate jesus have mercy on me and jesus says bring him over here and he heals him because jesus takes the authentic faith of broken people and he brings life out of it he doesn't take the self-reliant smugness of the great ones Ours is the age of authenticity where the one inviolable principle is that I have to live for my own desires. If you don't have desires, get some. Figure out what they are and then pursue them for all you've got. That's the message we get from our culture. I mean, honestly, like no matter what else has to give or even who else may have to pay a price for you to get your desires, if that's what it takes, even if it's family or friends, they must be sacrificed on the altar of authenticity. I gotta be true to me. If that makes it harder on my family, well, it's my family's job to put in their part so that I can have what I want. That's the mindset. And Jesus is saying, there's no life there. There's no life there. Actually, when we do that, it, the Bible tells us we become slaves to our drives and our impulses and our passions when we let them rule over us that way. And besides all that, the things that I feel inside, that's not the real me anyway. When I say I've got to be true to me and I'm referring to what I'm feeling inside of my passions, but that's, not, that's not your true self. That's not your real identity. 
Our whole life, including our emotions, not only our emotions, but including our emotions, has been cursed by sin. My emotions are consistently changing. They're contradictory. They're unreliable. They don't really lead me to a true sense of my identity. Who I am is that I am a man or a woman who is made in God's image, built to love him and serve him. That's who I am at my core, according to the Bible. And Jesus paves the only path to reconnect with my true self by atoning for my sins on the cross and reuniting me with God, the Father. So what Jesus has been telling us here in these last couple chapters of Mark's gospel is that the path to true life is not to pursue what you feel inside. Rather, the path to life is to pursue Jesus. And guys, in the age of authenticity, that makes us really weird. But it's good to wear that weirdness as a badge of honor. It is. And almost the worst thing we can do is identify ourselves as Christians and then go on pretty much living the same kind of suburban modern American life that everybody around me lives. Handling my money the same way, handling my relationships the same way, setting my goals and objectives the same way. There's really no difference. The reason that that's so bad is that a life like that actually tells a lie about the gospel. If I do that, then what I'm saying by my life is you can be a Jesus person and it doesn't really change you very much. You can add Jesus to your basically self-reliant American life and that all works out. But our Savior is calling us to be distinctive. Our Savior is calling us to live this life for him and not for ourselves. Because a much better one is coming anyway, thanks to him. Our Savior is calling us to be weird. So, how can you and I let Jesus be weird this week for his glory? Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for the, the great truths of your word. The fact that we live as so many of us, uh, your sons and daughters, your people, and yet we live um, embodied in sinful, broken bodies in a sinful world. We still feel the pull of boy, selfishness, material gain, wanting to do things our way, whatever. The details will differ from one person to the next, but we recognize the common heart themes in the midst of it all. And I'm so grateful, Jesus, that you didn't take these 12 guys who seemed so stubbornly to not get what you were saying and just kick them to the curb and start over. But that the whole gospel is about grace. You continue to love and continue to patiently teach and continue to accept and forgive them for their sinful shortcomings and you offer the same thing to every one of us. Lord, there's a powerful, compelling message of being weird, being distinctive and different that you've given us. And for many of us who are Christians, it resonates. We aspire to it, but we can immediately see all the ways that we know we fall short of that. And if we're not careful, the guilt of falling short prevents us from moving forward. But Jesus, I'm grateful for this season of Lent heading into Easter because you've told us exactly what to do with sin and with guilt. We bring it to the foot of the cross where you have paid the penalty, where you have made the way, and where you, by your spirit, will enter our lives and begin changing us to be more like you. 
God, I pray for a church full of people who are so captivated with the message that you're painting here that we would strive for it, but we are so grounded in the gospel we wouldn't strive by our own strength, but that we would strive to be your people who are changed by you, that many people around us, though they may raise an eyebrow or two at the bizarre attitudes and values we hold, will be able to see the life, the life that you offer as they interact with us. We pray that you would use us this way for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.